Welcome, everybody, to the London School of Economics. Welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. And welcome to tonight's event on the ethics of Nudge. It's my pleasure to briefly introduce our panel for tonight. It's a truly interdisciplinary panel. We have academic economists and cognitive scientists. We have policymakers. And we have philosophers to discuss the ethics of Nudge with us. On the far left, we have one representative of academic economics, Drajan Prelets, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he teaches economics and cognitive science. He's a professor there, teaching, among other things, neuroeconomics. Right next to him, we have Sam Noyan of the Behavioral Insights team in the Cabinet Office, otherwise known as the Nudge Unit, concerned with applying psychology to public policy. Then in the center, we have George Löwenstein from Carnegie Mellon University, where he's professor of economics and psychology, working, among other things, on decision-making over time. And then we have Luke Bovens of our philosophy department, head of the philosophy department here at LSE, also running the philosophy and public policy program. He has been working on the ethics of Nudge. He'll be our chair tonight, our philosophy chair, and I'll hand over straight to Luke. Thanks very much, Gabriel. So um, I would like to just hand over straight away to, um, to our panel. So the, the format for tonight will be that uh, we'll do sort of five-minute presentations by each of our panel members, um, and then we'll engage in a bit of a dialogue, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So um, Sam, I think we decided you would go first. So the practitioner goes on the floor first. All right, terrific. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Um, so my name is Sam. I work in the Behavioral Insights team. I've worked there for a few years now on a wide range of different policy areas. Um, and before we begin, I just want to say, as you might imagine, I fully advocate the use of behavioral science in policymaking. Kind of should go without saying. And I want to talk about three things. Three things, uh, some of which you probably won't have heard much about in the past. Um, the first of which is the Civil Service Code. So this is a set of rules and guidelines for policymakers in the UK government. Then I'm going to talk about the most important lesson from behavioral science, as in my opinion anyway, and from the work that we've done. Then finally, I'm going to talk about whether nudge is an alternative to other things, other policy instruments. First of all, when we say policymaking, what do we mean? I'm just going to give you about five seconds on this. So government has a democratic mandate. Um, ministers are elected in this country and in many others. And when they are elected, they are kind of given a mandate for a set of stuff government policy. I'm just going to put that stuff in a bucket and not talk much about it, because what I'm going to talk about is the practical applications um, of the behavioral science, not necessarily the objectives. Kind of a talk for another day. So, so this bucket, government policy. Um, as we've looked through a lot of it, we found that pretty much all of it, or much of it anyway, concerns behavior. So the behavior of government staff and service providers, and of citizens too. Um, and so first, the code, the Civil Service Code. What is the Civil Service Code? So it used to be that when you first started in government, you had to sign this long document called the Civil Service Code. And taking the fact that pretty much everybody did it, they changed the default so that now you come and the code is somewhere you never see, um, but you are signed up to it implicitly by virtue of being in government. But you still have to read it. And what does it have in it? It has four principles. One, integrity. Two, honesty. Three, objectivity. And four, impartiality. So it's not a particularly controversial list for policymakers. I'm going to talk about two of these, just very quickly. So integrity. I had a quick look, reread through the Civil Service Code. 
in order to put this together. And in integrity, it says that you should put the obligations of public service above your own personal interests. That sounds kind of boring, because of course you should do that. Um, what does it say in the fine print? It says that you should make sure public money and other resources are spent effectively and efficiently. So, integrity, spend money well. And then it also talks about objectivity, which is basing your advice and decisions on rigorous analysis of the evidence. Again, not particularly controversial. But I think those two are crucial things when you're talking about behavioral science and nudge in policymaking. So that's the civil service code to talk about spending money wisely and using evidence. So my second point, what do I think is the most important lesson from behavioral science, from nudge? Um, and you might be surprised that it's not particularly about choice architecture. I think the most important lesson and the lesson we've learned in policy very recently is really about the fact that behavior and the interventions that change behavior are hard to predict. That's both in terms of their magnitude and direction of your intervention. So do you have a positive effect or a negative one when you try and do something positive? Actually harder to predict than you might think. What is the magnitude of that uh, intervention? Hard to predict as well. To give you a quick example, our work on tax, we showed that very simple changes um, to the letters the government already sends out to ask people to pay their tax on time has a substantial, um, causes a substantial increase in the number of people who then pay to give you a counterexample, the Israeli government did something quite similar. I'm sorry if there is any Israeli officials in the room, but they found that there's also small changes, also using social norms um, to their tax letters, caused a, a very large decrease in the amount of people who pay tax on time. Too bad, huh? Um, good thing they ran an experiment. But I guess the lesson is both. Uh, if we're talking about the direction being uncertain, also the magnitude. So we've made really tiny changes, changes you wouldn't think make any difference. So, for example, when you register to pay your road tax, there's one line on a website you look at that asks you to sign up to the organ donor register. We tried putting a bunch of different facts there about organ donation and looked at which one um, would encourage people to sign up. And we found that the best one compared to the control group, um, which was that if you needed an organ, would you take one, would increase the number of people on the register by 100,000 people every year. Tiny change, free change. So run experiments and the details matter. My final point, um, just to address um, some potential criticism before it comes, um, is that people often... (laughs) This is actually something I've spoken to George about in the past. um, People often say, you can't just nudge your way out of every problem. You can't solve everything with behavioral science. In addition, they say, if something's really bad, and we all agree it's bad, why don't we just ban it? Why don't we just get rid of it? And the thing about this criticism is I fully agree with it. Um, Sometimes, as policymakers, you should use the full toolbox that you have in front of you. And that actually, um, behavioral science can make those other tools better. So just really quickly, because I know I'm taking probably more time than Luke wants me to, um, there's a paper that I just really want to talk about. It's my favorite paper. Um, It's by, by a guy called Bettinger. And they looked at how to get disadvantaged kids to go to university. Universities like this one. And they found that although the government subsidies for um, people going to university in the U.S. were already more substantial than at least I expected, uh, they can, you can, with very simple changes, you can dramatically increase the number of people who go. They found that if you just filled out some of the paperwork to apply for the financial aid for people, you could increase the number of people who actually went to university for three years by eight percentage points. So that is like a five to ten minute intervention to fill out a form for somebody shouldn't be that substantial a um, barrier, I guess, to something as important as sending your child to university has a massive impact. So what I'm trying to say by that is 
tweaking existing policies like incentives, subsidies, can make them much more effective. So just to conclude, um, I was saying that small changes make a big difference. We need experiments to know when that is the case and when it isn't, and that behavioral science can be used alongside other tools. Going back to the civil service code, I don't just think that behavioral science is interesting. I mean, it is very interesting. But I actually think that, given those things, it's actually a moral imperative for government to at least consider it in order to fulfill the code that we've signed up to, i.e. to spend money wisely and to use the best evidence available. Thanks very much, Sam. Um, So let's um, move to to Drazen now. Okay, so um, I just want to make a... uh, uh, two, two uh, observations and then put four words on the table to which we can return, I think, in the course of the discussion. First observation is uh, I, t- I teach at MIT, which is really an engineering school, and some years ago a colleague floated a proposal that MIT should have a department of behavioral engineering. And somehow this uh, raised concerns uh, that this, this was a non-starter because it's a slightly scary thought. What, what are the technologies that uh, we could develop that could engineer uh, human choice? Uh, the other observation is I think uh, nudge can be construed in a, in a narrow or in a, in, a, in a broader frame. And I think uh, Samuel presented in a broader frame. But the narrow frame where the approach was really invented uh, by, or, uh, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, uh, is in the context of a debate against uh, a hypothetical, probably conservative uh, believer in rational choice. So you can defend nudge against the right or against the left, but originally it was formed, I think, or at least I can imagine, a debate against a Chicago economist who believes that uh, preferences, everybody has well-defined preferences, um, and that people are rational and so on. And so you approach this person and you say, look, um, if we can uh, change people's choices by changing the default, whether you have to actually click a box or unclick a box or something like that, that should be okay because that doesn't infringe on, 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 your, on, your, on your freedom of choice. And that hypothetical interlocutor would say, yes, that's okay because if a person... Um, can go either way depending on how on this trivial manipulation, then they really don't care. And if they don't care, you are free to decide for them. So this is really an argument against, against uh, someone on the right. Now, uh, many of the concerns about Nudge really arise in an argument against someone on the other side. And I, I want to mention four words that, um, that capture some concerns here. The first is neutrality. Uh, if, a, if the planner or the social engineer has a technology for changing our decisions, whose preferences, whose, uh, preferences are being implemented? Is there a mechanism? Ideally, uh, they should be the genuine preferences of the people who are being nudged. Is there a mechanism that ensures that uh, their preferences are correctly captured? Second word is uh, transparency. Many of the methods here seem to operate uh, without people being aware uh, that they're being moved in one or another direction. Is that crucial? Would these nudges work if each nudge was accompanied by a warning sign saying, you are being nudged right now, beware? <laughs> now, if that would destroy the effect, uh, does that matter? Is it, is it uh, or if... Uh, 
if these warning signs uh, don't destroy the effect, that's a, that's a different situation. Accountability. Um, if we have a method that will decide for you how much you will save, who's responsible for your final savings amount? Is it you, or is it the government, or is it somebody in between? Um, when we make consumer choices, we can blame ourselves. If the government decides to tax something or to ban some substances, we can blame them. But here we're in this middle zone where the final outcome is some kind of collaboration between the nudger and the nudgee. And you might wonder whether it's good to dilute accountability in this way. And the final word is modesty. I think the, the brilliance of the word nudge was that it connotes a kind of modesty of uh, methods and a modesty of tools. And so we can push people in the general in the right direction. But I think it's useful to speculate how we would feel if this really became even more, much more effective. So we could not only nudge people, but actually predict um, or choose for them their savings rate, their uh, body weight. Um, so in a sense, what makes the approach palatable is that initially it seems that these are relatively um, modest, modest interventions, but that may not be the case as, um, as science progresses. Thanks, Jasmine. George? So I'm going to use the crutch of PowerPoint. Should I, how do I do that? Go up there. <clears throat> so now I know why Sam wanted to go before me, which is, um, you, d you did anticipate one of my um, comments. Um, yeah, just click. Okay. Okay, great. Um, yeah, you wanted to rebut my point before I, before I made it. Um, and actually, but, um, it turns out I had no idea. Drajan and I are in offices next to one another, but then we agreed not to say what we were going to tell each other what we were going to talk about. But it turns out that Drajan's was like a perfect, one of Drajan's points is a perfect lead into what I'm going to talk about. All right, so two points that I want to make. The first is the SAM point. Um, why, are why are nudges um, so popular? Um, I think it has something to do with the magnetic attraction for humans of the idea of a, a quick fix. First point is very few of the problems that nudges aim to solve were, are actually caused by human psychology. And I've actually written the opposite in many papers, and so has Thaler and Sunstein. We've all written about how these problems are caused by human psychology. But I've come to the conclusion that that's not true. For example, if you think about savings rates, savings rates in the United States were quite high until early 1980s, and then they started dropping, 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 until they actually got, for a little bit, right before the financial crisis, they were actually negative. People were spending more money than they were earning. What, um, is it human psychology that caused savings rates to drop? I doubt if there was a sudden change in human psychology in 1980. I think um, there was the introduction of credit cards. There was increase in income inequality. I think, I think um, Ronald Reagan may have played a role, but I don't know exactly what it was. Um, and at the same time, we, had the, we used to have a pension system, and now we have something called defined contribution savings plans, which are basically, it's a euphemism for you save for your own retirement. 
And so undersaving isn't caused by human psychology. It's caused by all of these things that changed around 1980. Obesity, again, yes, people like short-term benefits and um, they dislike short-term costs, but the U.S. was perfectly thin for a very long time, and once again, right around when Ronald Reagan came into office, <laughs> I got a laugh twice. Like my, my kids, if, if something gets a laugh, a joke gets a laugh, then they'll always repeat it. Um, <laughs> So um, the, um, what happened, well, there was a, the cost of healthy, like fruits and healthy foods, so-called healthy foods, fruits and vegetables, um, increased, and the cost of processed unhealthy foods um, decreased dramatically over time. At the same time, a, a huge number of women entered the labor force, so they, um, there was a lot more time scarcity. So the time cost increased also um, making processed foods more attractive. There's also a big increase in income inequality, and it's mainly poor people who are obese. And really, in my opinion, the big problem is that the food industry is imposing this huge um, externality on uh, health externality on people and has no incentive to internalize the health costs that it's causing. High medical um, costs... Um, in the United States, um, as you know, we have insanely high medical costs and high costs of health insurance. Um, what, and certainly we have a lot of bad health behaviors, but you, you have, um, living in London now, I can see that uh, Londoners have probably way worse health behaviors. I can't believe the amount that you, of alcohol you guys consume. Um, <laughs> and you smoke a lot more than we do, too. And so high medical costs in the United States are not due to health behaviors, even though health behaviors contribute to high medical costs everywhere. It's due to the ridiculous um, fee-for-service arrangements we have that encourage, um, like, over-provision of services. And finally, um, climate change. Climate change is just like a classic case of a free-rider problem or an externality. The, the um, carbon gas that I emit has no discernible impact on my own well-being. And, so, and that's true for everyone. And so we're all emitting like mad. We're all flying around and um, so on and not internalizing our own costs. So my point is that um, none of these problems are directly caused by human psychology. Yes, human psychology um, plays a role. Most of them have to do with externalities and misaligned incentives. And if we could fix the externalities, if we could get the incentives right, we wouldn't have these problems. And so nudges are really um, generally the second best responses to problems that do have first best solutions. I also think, this is kind of a side point, but I do think that the effectiveness, people, and this actually relates to both Sam Androgen's comments, but I think that there's this huge um, fear of nudges, that people believe that they're incredibly effective, that's partly because you hear a lot more of the success stories than you hear about the, um, fail the failures. And that gives a sense, like, nudges are really powerful. I don't think they're quite as powerful as they're widely believed to be. Um, so putting all of this together, in my view, the most serious potential downside of nudges is the potential to distract um, policymakers um, from other more conventional and often more heavy-handed 
solutions. That's the biggest potential downside of nudges. And I think, um, so Thaler and Sunstein um, wrote this paper, Libertarian Paternalism, as Rajan said, trying to appeal to um, libertarians and people like Milton Friedman. My team and I, we wrote a paper titled um, Regulation in the same year, Regulation for Conservatives. We were trying to appeal to conservatives. Like we were all trying to get to win over conservatives. And we won. We, we achieved our goal. So like the conservative government here is a, like a big advocate of nudges. But I, I really worry that people, that conservative governments um, who are opposed to more heavy-handed types of solutions involving regulation, taxes and subsidies and so on, um, are using or may, may use and in fact may, are very likely using nudges as an excuse for not doing these other types of policies. Okay, I probably took way too long on that. Second point has to do with this issue of awareness that Drajan talked about and um, that also uh, Professor Bovins has um, discussed. And so there's a lot of discussion of this issue of transparency and awareness. The House of Lords report that was critical of nudges specified as one of two main criteria for judging the ethical acceptability of a nudge, quote, the extent to which an, a nudge is an intervention is covert. And Professor Bovins wrote a um, book chapter titled The Ethics of Nudge um, that I read a couple of days ago. And he also writes about the importance of awareness. For example, he writes the psychological mechanisms that are exploited in cafeteria and Save More Tomorrow typically work better in the dark. If we tell students that the order of the food in the cafeteria is, is rearranged for dietary purposes, then the intervention may be less successful. If we explain the endowment effect to employees, they may be less inclined to, quote, save more tomorrow. Okay, so there's a, lot, there's a widespread belief that nudges are less effective if people know about them. But um, my colleagues and I actually... Um, just set out to test that idea, and it was uncannily, um, Drajan um, said something about um, warning, you are about, it was uncannily like the title of the paper that we um, just submitted for publication, but in any case, um, and I don't think he has seen my paper, but we have this paper, warning you're about to be nudged, and in this paper, we look at the effect of um, pre-warning people that they are going to be nudged. And this is in the context of an advance directive, which is a, like, a, like a living will, something you complete to um, say what types of interventions you want um, in the event that you become disabled and unable to communicate your medical um, health care wishes. Um, and I'm worried, I am going way over time, am I not? Am I? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, Who you off the stage yet? Yeah. <laughs> we. Um, That's a nudge, right? We, we, two or three minutes is not a nudge. <laughs> the. So we compared. Um, um, we defaulted people into an advanced directive that either um, supported comfort options or prolongation of life options. And in another condition, we told people before they completed the form that we were going to, we were going to default them. And we, in fact, we went a step further. We told them they were randomly assign, being assigned to being defaulted in one condition or the other. And in the third condition, 
we had them fill out the form with the default, but then they filled out, um, then we told them about the default and they, we gave them an opportunity to change their choices. I think I'm not going to, I'm going to, not going to show you the details of the results, but I will summarize them. And this, there, there's the result. You can see it would probably take more than three to five minutes to go over those slides. But here's the, here's the punchline of the slide that I skipped, that um, pre-informing people, warning people that they were going to be nudged, did not, in fact, have much of an impact at all on the impact of the default. So I think... Um, on the one hand, it does suggest that we can have transparency without diminishing the impact of nudges. On the other hand, it really worries us. And if you think about the context of advanced directives, and even after warning people, telling them you've been randomly assigned to one default or another, even after telling them, the nudge still has an impact. And this is kind of an important decision, what your end-of-life care is going to be. It really, I think it certainly raises questions about whether we want to be using advanced directives at all, whether advanced directives are capturing any kind of true preferences, if it is so easy to, pe to shift people's preferences even when they know that their preferences are being manipulated. So two points. The biggest risk for nudges may be that they'll be substituted for more fundamental and effective interventions. And second, awareness may not be the major issue it has been assumed to be. Nudges may be about as effective even if people are aware that, aware that they're being nudged. Well, thank you very much, all, for these um, contributions. Um, so, so let me just uh, throw a, a question at our, at our first speaker, and I think it's something that we can all relate to. Um, so you, you talk about the civil service code, right? And you say you're only going to pick out, you know, a couple of components there. But I couldn't help but hearing honesty, right? And, of course, this is one of the things that one might worry about if you're nudging, are you, are you honest to your, to, your, to your citizenship, right? Um, and, and so, you know, just to make an analogy, uh, suppose that, I mean, this is the philosopher's game, right? We can, we can, you know, do these thought experiments. I mean, there's all this talk about subliminal images, yeah? So, you know, you're watching a movie, and then there is this little, there's this little screen spliced in there of, of, of you know, whatever, um, something you can buy um, in, in the shop next door, right? Um, an ice cream or whatever. And so, you know, after you come out of the movie, you go, like, oh, i got to have that ice cream, right? Now, there was some talk that this kind of stuff works, and it's just one screen, so you don't really see it, but you unconsciously register all these things, right? Um, now, suppose that the government says, whoa, you know, this is working great. Suppose this is working great. And so here is a particular um, TV show which is watched by a lot of obese people, all right? So let's suppose we put some slice, you know, we slice some screens in there of, of, of happy carrots, right? And suppose it works, right? I, th I think, you know, we'd all be outraged that the government is doing this, even if they are elected on a platform saying that they're going to do things like nudging and so on, right? But wouldn't this be a usage of behavioral psychology, which we would be very nervous about? And if we're nervous about that because we think it's dishonest, maybe it also doesn't respect the integrity of the population. You know, we feel like we're infantilizing them, we're experimenting with them, and so on. What, I think we can agree that we wouldn't like that sort of intervention much. But if we don't like that kind of intervention, 
Why would we be happy with any kind of other interventions of behavioral psychology? Is there a difference here, or can we defend one, whereas, you know, being nervous about the other? Or shouldn't we be nervous about the happy carrots spliced into our, you know, into our movies uh, at all? So, so. Uh, Thank you for laying a very effective trap for me, Luke. Um, <laughs> I actually, you will not be surprised to hear, think that the happy carrot policy is not a good one. Um, one of the things, so if we're talking about honesty in particular, let's suppose that the government told everybody that they were going to introduce this happy carrot policy. Let's have a thought experiment. I'm not suggesting that they do this. Um, and they were elected explicitly on the proviso that they would. You could potentially argue that it would be unethical for them not to do it. So the policy itself doesn't necessarily, from a democratic standpoint, have a, um, any kind of more implicit morality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite difficult for me to think in these abstractions because I know that nobody would go for that policy, um, in, inside government or outside. Uh, but I think if you ask me to draw a rule, I guess, between those kinds of policies and the ones in which we would definitely advocate, yeah. mm-hmm. the reality is I just can't do that for you. I don't think there is some hard and fast rule there. You're on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually think morality kind of doesn't really work like that, Mm -hmm. Um, which I know is a bit of a cop-out answer. Um, But I I think that that kind of policy definitely wouldn't agree with. The kind of stuff that we do, as I said before, um, I would. And we are honest about what we do. Um, We publish what we are doing normally before actually the results come in um, and always afterwards before we roll it out nationally. (coughs) And normally the reception is very good. Pretty much always, actually. Yeah. I agree with you that the reception to the policy would probably be negative, but I think it, would, it seems like it would be difficult to come up with a principle to justify it. I mean, um, Bloomberg, the mayor of the ex-mayor of New York, advocated a policy of putting the cigarettes behind the counter. In fact, I think he might have implemented it. And... So you could think of this, cigarettes had been a sort of subliminal um, cue, and now they are gone, and none of us have a problem with, I, I, I certainly don't have a problem with them putting the, in fact, I wrote something about that, about, with the cigarettes behind the counter. So if we're okay with removing it, like, um, then why would we be not okay with a policy that introduced it? Or if you think about, then you have the cigarette warnings, mm-hmm. and... That's, an ex- that's like an explicit healthy carrot. I guess it goes back to the awareness that we're uncomfortable with interventions that, are, that, we're not, that people are not aware of. So, I mean, the, the cigarettes example is interesting because we have an instrument, which is taxes, for making cigarettes more costly and infinitely costly, costly if we like, but somehow making them... Uh, less salient or less available changes the perception. So, I mean, I've been wondering about this. Let's suppose you have um, in, 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 in the U.S. in some uh, retirement arrangements, you can change your, you can increase or reduce your contribution on the phone. Suppose you had a system that if you wanted to reduce your savings, you would put on a on a, on, a, on a wait, and you have to wait, and the line would kind of 
be interrupted. You have to dial again five times. And eventually, you know, you could reduce it, and, but it wouldn't be as smooth. Now, uh, I mean, that feels like a tax, but it's not called a tax. It's a tax under different guise. So why not resort uh, just to the traditional instruments, which is to make things costly in, uh, in financial terms? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I guess, you know, the, the sort of motivation to to move away from this kind of, you know, regulation-style interventions, right, is that, you know, you want to, to protect the freedom of the, of the consumers and so on. Um, now, it's, it's a funny thing to think about, you know, respecting the freedom of the consumers when, when in a way, you're kind of experimenting on them. I mean, when I'm thinking about, you know, what you're saying, um, how you get people to, to file their taxes a couple of days away, right, 31st of January, um, you know, it, it seems like respecting people's freedom is not just taking options away, but it's also, you know, respecting them in a way as rational decision makers. And it seems to me that if you say, okay, let's put in a couple of phrases left and right, and let's see what people respond to the best, you know, you sort of experimenting on them as if you're experimenting on monkeys, you know. I mean, isn't there sort of a, a sense in which you don't respect their dignity when you do that. Doesn't that worry you? And the same thing with, you know, I'll fill out the paperwork for you, because that's certainly something you can't do yourself, yeah? So do you respect their dignity? And if you don't respect their dignity, do we respect their freedom? Okay, so I think there are a few different things that I don't agree with in all of that. Um, So leave experiments to one side for a second and talk about the kinds of interventions we're doing, particularly with tax policy. Um, Actually, the government doesn't want people to act rationally with regards to tax. Very much not. If you only weighed up the... I mean, this is a a paradox throughout all tax collection um, systems in the world, pretty much, which is that if citizens were very rational, don't tell anybody at the tax office, I told you this, they wouldn't pay very much tax. <laughs> so uh, I'm very, very comfortable saying that they should not act rationally in that particular instance. I don't th- whether it infantilizes them or not, I'm kind of is a secondary concern to me. Um, in order to fulfill the obligations of government, in order to do the things that people elect the government to do and give it certain powers to do, you need to raise tax money. And um, whether the specific individuals are acting in a rational way or not is kind of irrelevant. Um, Secondly, with regards to experiments and whether experiments per se make people, uh, treat people like monkeys, as you say, um, I actually don't have very much time for this argument at all, in fact. I think government, one of our responsibilities is to do, to do things that are effective. What's worse, right, to do stuff and not know whether it works or not, to spend potentially many hundreds of billions of pounds a year on things which do nothing or have the opposite effect to intended, could hurt people, harm people, or to run a test to see if they work or not. Um, I think in that context, anyone that argues against experimentation is, in my opinion, slightly mad. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll take that judgment. <laughs> Can I say a couple yes. of yeah. Well, First, um, on your, your tax point, I, I think you have a pretty narrow view of rationality in that example. So I'm not, I'm not um, pro war at all, but lots of people fight in wars, and that's probably, you, you could say that's irrational 
uh, for the individuals to, to fight in the, in the wars, like, um, or, and people vote. I mean, people have, it's a very um, narrow definition of rationality to say you shouldn't pay your taxes. If you, if you like the way your society is and you want to be an integral part of it, then there are all sorts of duties as a citizen. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced on that. Um, and on the experiments, you said that, you know, it's like treating humans like animals, but I, I, I think humans, um, you have to get informed consent to experiment, with, do most experiments with them, and you can't do that with animals. So in some ways, I think it's more ethical to do experiments with humans who can consent than with animals, especially when you look at the gruesome things that are done to animals um, who don't have the ability mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. consent. Now, these, po- these policy experiments, um, I don't know. It doesn't, they don't, to me, it doesn't seem analogous to guinea pigs. Like, um, you're just, I agree with Sam, you're just trying to figure out um, mm-hmm. what works, and you only run them when you aren't sure of what works, so you have equipoise. Mm-hmm. And I guess just to add to that, we're almost never sure what works. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't bother doing it. Right. Yeah. And in many situations where you are sure what works, um, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not just um, coming in from, from the States, in a way, Thaler and Sunstein, right? And, and so the images that we often have of the States is that, you know, they're very anti-paternalistic, you know, many, many policies that are sort of completely unproblematic um, in, in, in Europe is, you know, would, would not fly in the States. Like, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in, in rural Minnesota, and these people are, are very upset because, because Obama is taking away their raw milk, you know, the right to drink raw milk, you know, rather than the pasteurized stuff, right? They, they feel this is a paternalistic intervention. Um, but, but so it's kind of curious in a way that this new way of intervening is coming from the states. So, of course, you could say, well, when we're nudging, then, you know, we're not regulating. And so in that sense, we're not being paternalistic. But we're still paternalistic in another way, maybe even more paternalistic, um, So what do you feel about the difference in the reception in the U.S. versus the U.K. of of this kind of, you know, different style of paternalistic intervention? And I think that's a question for all of you. I mean, I would would question the premise of what you said, that, um, that there's kind of international differences and openness to paternalism. Like so many things... I think it's very domain-specific. So, like, we're very... We Americans are very obsessed with our guns. I see. But, on the other hand, we have barred um, smoking in public places. We have all sorts of restrictions on smoking. And, like, for example, the Germans, for maybe for some kind of obscure historical reasons, don't regulate smoking at all. So I kind, I kind of suspect that every society, for probably for historical reasons, has its own kind of raw nerve. It's not the own, it's a, 
specific domains that it, where it hates but, to... But the smoking is very much on the grounds of harm to others, right? It's smoking in the workplace, smoking in restaurants, um, and, and that's how the motivation for, for smoking bans were run. They weren't run on paternalistic grounds. Uh, I think they really, ultimately, they really are based on um, paternalistic grounds, but they, and, and the externality is really kind of a, a smoke screen. I mean, um, the, oh, and now I see why you're like, what, <laughs> what I think, what I think, uh, let me just disagree with George a little bit on uh, what is, I think, uh, distinctive about the U.S. is the extent to which uh, true debates are disguised through debates about other issues. So, for example, uh, the debate about guns is really, it is about guns, but it's about other things. Um, th- there used to be very strong debates about seatbelt laws, even referenda, uh, where I think in Massachusetts, where I live, uh, there was a referendum in the past that uh, got rid of the seatbelt law and then it was restored. But these debates were not just about uh, seatbelts. They were about fundamentally very different ideas about how society should be set up that somehow find their outlet through this uh, paternal, paternalistic issue. And I, and I don't think that's so much the case in Europe. That's my, that's my sense. I'm not convinced it's really very fundamental. If you look at an issue like school uniforms in the United States, it, that they're, um, they're really favored by conservatives, by the same people who favor um, free, you know, free access to guns are pro-school uniforms. And everything kind of gets flipped around. I'm not convinced that there's like a fundamental core. I think, I think there's a lot of arbitrariness to what people are ready to regulate. Just quickly on the UK experience. Um, so in the party political sense, a lot of the stuff that our team does and the original papers that support um, our work and the original incarnation of having some people working on behavioral science in government was actually under the previous administration. And it was only the Conservatives obviously talked a lot about behavioral science, but it was only once they came in that it became a bit more popular and well-known. Um, but to think that it's one side of government, not the other, I think is a slight misconception of what the reality was. Um, one other quick point is that I think the UK experience for us has been actually one of luck more than anything. So there are several things that I think we were quite lucky about. So one of which was the initial reaction, unlike in the US, was um, laughter here. So people don't really remember this so much. I do, um, having been a little bit in the firing line, or the team at least, um, in that people thought, isn't it silly and hilarious that the government has a behavioral insights team? That was the initial reaction for many months. And it was when the field experiments started coming out that people were like, hey, look, these guys can actually do something. Then the other thing I think that was particularly lucky was when the field experiments came out, the response wasn't, look how bad the control group is. Um, look how bad existing government policy is. Because in some of our examples, um, we were sending out all of these letters to people who we knew owed us tax, all this other kind of thing. And the default response rate with the previous letter was like 3 2 3%. Um, and we moved that to 30%, not because the letter was amazing, it's just because you could actually understand it. And so um, I think actually the UK experience, like I say, has been one of luck more than anything. Okay. Um, so another thing that I, you know, this is my last question really, if you, if you think about the, the, the politi- various political dimensions in the US and the UK, the left, the right, Lib Dems and, 
um, conservatives in power, Labour with nannying before, um, you know, Obama kind of flirting with nudge, the conservatives, Lib Dems flirting with nudge, Labour's nannying. I mean, in, in that sort of field of forces, how, how do you see... How do you see, you see nudge coming down? I mean, what is the left, what's the right saying about it in the U.S., in the U.K.? How does it fit in with the party politics in the U.K. and, and so on? I think there's a real tension because almost all of the nudgers who I know, including myself, are on the left of the political spectrum. And yet, I, um, it's really caught on in Britain, and I think it's not a coincidence. I do think it has to do with the Cameron government, which um, generally doesn't, isn't in favor of regulation and taxes and things like that, likes everything to be voluntary. So it, it is a strange situation that's evolved where left-leaning nudgers are working on behalf of a more right-leaning government. It is, it's a strange situation here. Let me just make a very kind of general observation prompted by a question, which is the, the fundamental issue in some sense is, is extremely crude, which is do you blame the individual or do you bl- blame uh, something about society? And this, this relates to, to George's point about nudge potentially being a distraction. Um, and, and, and I want to add one reflection, although it's not quite responding to Luke's point, which is if, if you look at um, how research areas wax and wane in social science, it's striking what's happened over the last, say, 50 years, that if you go back 50 years, much of the best or most, most significant social science or, or psychology was really concerned with demonstrating something striking about the relationship between the individual and society. And the most famous experiment there was Milgram's experiment where people were um, uh, moved to give lethal electroshocks to other subjects under authority and so on. And, and, and now what we have today in social science really is very much how to fix up the individual. And this is true in psychology, it's true in economics, but, uh, and that's, that's just striking because it says if the individual could behave things would be okay. And I think at a, at a very simple level, that's, that's why nudges is, is interesting. I, yeah, I could not agree with you more. And going back to subliminal messages, I think there is a subliminal message in the whole concept of nudge, um, which is that it is that human psychology is behind these problems, and hence humans are responsible for what's happened, the, the individuals who are suffering from the problems. And... If you look at something like the obesity epidemic, we didn't all get um, irresponsible and short-sighted all of a sudden in 1980, but the food industry would love to blame the people who are obese, even though it's really the actions of the food industry that have led to the problem. So I just want to second Drajan's point that there is a danger in the nudge perspective that it, it tends to blame the individual for problems that aren't, that have other sources. Just because just uh, I know Luke likes disagreement, I'm actually going to disagree with that point very slightly. Um, I actually think that you can both believe that behavioral science and nudge are good things and we should do them and not think that everything is the individual's fault. 
Um, in fact, I would say that's the opinion that I subscribe to. Um, and I think it's... If you, the way I think of behavioral science, as you may have seen from my talk and from some of the other um, questions I've answered, is we're trying to make government policy more effective. And one of the ways you can do that is, as we term it, like going with the grain of human nature. So policy shouldn't be something which makes life difficult for people, but should make life easier for them and easier for them to do the right thing. That doesn't necessarily have any particular um, moral judgment on what the person was doing beforehand only that the policy could be more effective. I, I agree with you, and that's why I use the term subliminal. Yeah, I, I'm cert- yeah. certainly there's nothing explicit in the nudge approach that says that individuals are responsible. But um, you know, your, la- your last point, uh, George, was really sort of, look, it's, it's, a, it's a societal problem, um, the obesity crisis, let's say. Um, so um, so let's, go, let's go to the cause of it. Right, which really gets us back to regulation, I take it. Because, I mean, in one way, you could also say, well, we have a choice architecture which leads to obesity. Let's shift the choice architecture, and now we're still in the, in the nudge paradigm, right? But I don't think you it's wanna, really, I mean... You want to say that's not the way to go I here. I don't think it's the choice architecture that led to the... It's price, you know, price, I don't know if you want to call prices choice architecture, but it's mainly a change in price, including the cost of time. Right. And, it's, and it's the failure of the food industry to internalize the costs that it's imposing on society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And fixing is through regulation. Well, um, it's often the case that the first best solution to a problem has to do with deal, dealing with the underlying cause. And in many cases, I think nudges are great things, but um, they're not up to... Nudges are not up to the task of dealing with the obesity epidemic, and I'm sure you would agree with me on that. Um, and so they could help. And they could help, but the as I as I said, the they could help, and they're great unless they are used as a substitute. Un, unless they end up being used as a substitute for the more first best solutions, and the, it's difficult to come up with a smoking gun on that point. We don't know whether they are or not, but if they are, that could potentially be very damaging. Okay, let's uh, open it up to to the audience. Um, I think we should take, there's so many people here, so many hands are going up, so um, I think we should take about two or three questions at a time. Let's start down here. Let's, let's wait a second um, until the microphone arrives. Um, and maybe quickly say your name and you know, what brings you here. Elena Congreve from the University of Hertfordshire. We've talked quite a lot about the food industry. I'd just like to ask the panel what they think about the relative spends involved. So sort of government programs to encourage healthy eating or to responsible drinking. The sort of budgets that go into those are absolutely dwarfed by the annual spend going into the food industry and the amount they're spending trying to persuade people to behave in the opposite way. And perhaps that's why people are quite amused by some sort of nudge campaigns that their production values are lower, the sophistication of the marketing is lower. So I wondered if you'd like to reflect on the size of money being spent by nudge campaigns compared to brands trying to persuade us to behave in a very different way. Let's take one more question. Oh. That person there in the... Can we in, do one? Yeah, one at a time, time here is yeah. the vote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to respond um, to this point because I, I, I really agree with it and... The, f- the food industry is, has a lot of resources and a lot of brains, and 
if we could change the incentives on the food industry so they were motivated, so they internalized the costs, so they were motivated the, um, to take into account the health, con- you know, the health consequences to the society, we'd have a very different society. They'd be using all these vast resources they have for the right purposes rather than the purposes they are using it for now. I agree. There's no competition between, if the food industry has its current incentives and the government is trying to work against that with nudges, it's just an, too uneven of a competition. just want to add a little, a little comment to that. Uh, I, I think what the food industry has on its side is, uh, some, is, is biology to some extent, and that, that um, I, I, I don't think they... Uh, I think that there's a general exaggeration of the power of advertising and that, that those kinds of things in creating, let's say, obesity. So it's, uh, but uh, as they say, people are simply choosing in direct comparison the sweeter products and adding sugar to all kinds of things just increases sales. I don't think you, if, if, um, I, I don't think they have a superior nudge technology in the background. This- um, I find it interesting that in this discussion of the ethics of nudge, we've not mentioned yet the the uh, idea of well-being, of human well-being. Uh, Samuel has uh, defended government policy by saying that there's a mandate for governments to, uh, to undertake actions. But um, how do you figure um, a nudge affects uh, human well-being and uh, how far... Um, should governments go in trying to promote well-being through nudges? Um, Good question. So one of the things, responsibilities of our team is in actually to both promote the use of um, well-being data actually in government policy um, as well as do behavioral science stuff. Um, I think I agree that uh, government policy, um, if, if people, if the public agree, should target well-being as a measure and why not um i mean we often as we make government policy our task as economists actually in fact with trying to put a value on the relative um pros and cons of doing a certain government policy and many of the values that are assigned are based on judgments that have to be made around well-being right but implicitly as opposed to explicitly um and i so i agree that if you had the data to do to target well-being with government policy and you had the mandate to do so, then why wouldn't you? I, yeah, I think I want to dissent on that, but it, it's, it's such a huge topic that we definitely don't want to get into it. But there's lots of decisions that we make that are that we know very well are contrary to our well-being. In terms, if, if you're talking when you talk about well-being, you're talking about kind of measured happiness or something like that. If you're talking about well-being more generally, then um, who knows? But Things like um, it's very well known or um, research has established that generally when people have um, children, they get less happy. And yet um, many of us have, have children with full knowledge of that um, research. <laughs> should, the, should the government be like discouraging us from having children because the government knows that we aren't you know, they're going to make us miserable? I don't think so. Like, uh, I think the government does have to respect people's preferences. I'm not a big fan of introducing well-being or kind of happiness measures into government policy. Yes? Yeah, uh, my name's Shay Bishnai. I work at the Ministry of Justice as a civil servant. 
Um, so it's more of a question for, for Sam, really. Um, Professor Prelitz mentioned the hypothetical conservative who, I guess, is okay or can be persuaded to be okay with nudge because it almost shows that, that you're pretty much indifferent. So do you, do you buy that, Sam, or do you think that nudge is more powerful than that and we're actually significantly changing uh, people's preferences? And if it's, if it's the latter, then do you sort of ever personally worry about crossing a line or do you think that all of the, the nudges that you're asked to work towards in government policy are sort of well within the parameters of when it's okay to significantly change people's preferences? Um, so with regards to whether we change people's preferences or not, um, I'm not sure I would go in necessarily use the same language. Uh, we would change their choices, right? But their preferences, underlying preferences, may well be the same. Um, so around the um, hypothetical conservative, right? So... Oh, could we potentially be crossing a line? Are we in replacement to other stuff? Are we just using it to convince people um, to do some nannying when they might otherwise not be inclined to do so? Um, that actually kind of... I don't worry about that particularly. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that I spoke a little bit about, but probably not enough, which is around the fact that behavioural science and nudges can make other policies better, right? And we can experimentally test whether that is the case. Um, and you can articulate in any way you'd like what the objective of that policy would be, but I think that a sound understanding of behavioural science and a willingness to use randomised trials will undoubtedly help you achieve that objective more effectively. And so, therefore, um, I think actually conservative or not conservative, not that big a deal, Um, and actually it's down to us civil servants to use behavioural science, even if it isn't nudging per se or isn't seen to be, to make our interventions better. Hi, uh, Beth Watts, Harriet Watt University. Uh, It strikes me that one of the areas this government and previous governments seem quite happy to use sanctions, uh, harder measures rather than soft nudge-type interventions, is in seeking to change the behaviour of a particular group, so welfare recipients, uh, people on unemployment benefits of various kinds. Um, I understand this is an area nudge-type interventions are now being used in, and there are some pilots, so... To Sam, I wondered if he could tell us anything about that. And to the other members of the panel, I wondered if they had any thoughts on you know, the ethics of nudge in that specific area in terms of trying to get unemployed people on out-of-work benefits, you know, back into work to search for jobs you know, harder or take different kinds of jobs. So, so just quickly, um, on the ethics of using sanctions in welfare... That's slightly above my station to particularly comment on. And what I would say is um, if there's evidence that it works and doesn't hurt people in some way, then I would be in favour of it. If there isn't, then I'd like to see the evidence. Um, I don't know of any particular evidence in either direction, particularly on sanctions, so it's kind of hard to say. Um, With regards to stuff we've done, um, just very quickly, I could bore you all to death. Uh, We've done a bunch of stuff looking at essentially planning in Uh, the welfare system. So how do you help people who are unemployed make a plan about what they're going to do to look for work? It attaches no new conditions or sanctions to anything that they say they're going to do. Um, And we found at least the initial data looks like it's quite effective at helping them. I I think uh, the question raises an an interesting issue that we haven't talked about so far, which is whether we view nudge as broad spectrum or narrow spectrum targeting a specific uh, community. And I think politically it becomes much more problematic when it's a, when it's a small group. So one, one group is nudging another group. Um, I think in the ideal uh, sense, uh, 
nudges our, our broad spectrum, that if we all agree we have some problems with uh, various sorts of issues, and we will uh, try to help ourselves. And that's, I think that was the original uh, inspiration for nudge as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a broad spectrum type of intervention. I, th- I think it's a very tricky issue, because if you look at something like um, what we in the United States we call welfare payments, but um, the, if you want to give poor people welfare payments, you, um, as people get wealthier, you have to start to pare them down. And the consequence of that is going to be that the marginal benefit of working for you, this is like economics 101 for the economists and the others, but the marginal benefit of working is reduced um, substantially for poor people. And so you could view a targeted nudge as a situation to, have, to give people, you know, to redistribute income and, and give um, low-income people um, support but at the same time try not to discourage them from work. That would be a positive take on what the government is trying to do with um, using nudges in this area, which it certainly is doing. It's interesting, actually, when you you look at the policies that that the nudge unit is putting forward in this respect, because, you know, often when I read documents coming from the nudge unit, I sort of ask myself, you know, what, what is the behavioral science here that is at work, right? Um, I remember reading something on transportation, and then some of the suggestions are build more bike paths. Well, you know, well, that seems perfectly rational if there's more bike paths that more people will take up biking. But in the same way here, it seems to me that the sort of intervention that we're thinking about, that is sit down with people, think about how they could plan the next week as to what kind of things that they might want to do, I mean, that seems to me to treat people as fully rational agents. I mean, they've lost some of that rationality. They feel that nothing that they do could have any effect whatsoever. We want to think, we want to, you know, re-educate them in a way, thinking in terms of instrumental rationality. Some of the things you do will make a difference. And so it's almost like antithetical to, you know, what behavioral economics comes in to do. I mean, this is treating people as rational agents, to sit down with them and think about how to plan the next week. Let's believe that you can get a job. How are we going to do that? What are the means towards that end? And so on. Um, I'm not sure that... I mean, I think the thing is, the if it is, if we... I guess what I'm trying to say is, if, the, if we think of this policy particular intervention as not being from the behavioral science world, mm-hmm. then we would, wouldn't have a particular problem with that. Um, we aren't bounded by any set of kind of... We're not in some box where if it's right. not in the book nudge, you can't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, that goes further to some of the points we've had actually debated already around, is it an alternative to other things? No. Um, mm-hmm. And then, actually, on the specific intervention, as an economist, I'm... I don't know yet, having not given it enough thought, whether I agree that someone we're treating someone as being perfectly rational um, by taking them for just a couple of minutes through um, a plan of what they're going to do to look for work, mm-hmm. which they write themselves in our company, which they don't have to do. Um, I'm not sure that I agree that's necessarily 
treating them as rational, um, although it might be. I, th- I think it's a bit of a caricature of behavioral economics to say it's about people behaving irrationally. Mm-hmm. I think it's more about um, taking people as they really are. Mm-hmm. So if you take something like loss aversion, that people really dislike losing money relative to gaining money, is that irrational or not? Like, um, if I lose $100, that's just the way I'm constituted. If I lose $100, I'm going to be really miserable and much more miserable than if I find $100. And behavioral economics is simply trying to be more realistic about that, whereas traditional economics would say that those two things should be roughly symmetric. And then behavioral economics and public policy is taking that a step further and trying to base public policy on a more realistic understanding of human behavior. So let me, um, since Sam and I have been um, disagreeing about everything, one of the things I really like a lot about the nudge, the so-called nudge unit, the behavioral insights team, is that they're not at all doctrinaire um, about using, you know, traditional nudge policies. It's really, as far as I can see, it's really just um, putting a bunch of smart, creative people together and just trying to figure out what's the best solution to any problem. But the toolbox is expanded um, by taking into account these um, deeper and more realistic insights into human behavior. Gentleman in the front here. Yes, I'm 85, so I can look back 50 years when the national output was 7% growth. And over those 50 years, I've seen it go down, 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 down. And my question is, is it really common sense to chuck industry's capital down welfare's bottomless pit? And is it essential that will happen, that uh, we will slowly go negative, more negative, and more negative. There's no end while the welfare state and human rights exist. Now think about it, and you'll work it out. So are we pouring too much money into nudge? Um, so I guess I think that the that's the kind of question that actually we in the team don't normally think about um, which I guess is the relative resourcing of large areas of policy Uh, and that comes down to I guess George's point about nudge not replacing other other instruments of policy and other ways of thinking about things and I think the allocation of resources across large areas of government is something that I guess we just don't, we don't get invited to those parties unfortunately If, if I can just make, make a comment about, uh, I'm, I'm not a nudge insider unlike uh, George and, and Samuel but my, my perception is one, that one of the positive things that has happened is that uh, policy at least uh, within economics has been really narrowly linked to quantitative models whereas the nudge approach is more about, uh, I think the word creative is, is important, more about 
uh, doing something like um, uh, interesting new things, uh, being more, a little bit more like a planner or an architect or a designer as opposed to just someone who is writing equations and determining policy from those equations. And that's a difference in, in style that's important. Um, let's go to the gentleman. Hi, my name's uh, Alex, and uh, I declare an interest of having worked with Sam's team in government and as part of business. Um, I think I would like to politely disagree, um, Professor Lowenstein, with your view that nudge can be damaging because it um, distracts policymakers from more traditional options. Um, I kind of re recall um, seeing adverts for telling you to put on seatbelts, and I don't know what the fine is. I know there's a fine. I don't even know who pays it, whether it's the passenger or the driver, because government's worked out that it's more impactful to um, show someone the emotional cost of losing a family member, and that's what the adverts that discourage us from not wearing seatbelts do. And so I, first of all, take issue that... Um, that nudge is necessarily less effective than alternative options. But I think the second point, and I think that's more, more interesting, is that what also matters is the economy of policymaking. And in policymaking, there are very many nudges to spend a lot of money. Ministers like announcing it. And there are a lot of nudges to regulate because um, MPs like to see regulation. And so I think... Um, as a policy practitioner myself, what's most important about the nudge unit is that it's an implicit nudge to policymakers that there are alternatives. And actually, it's interesting to think about not just the, the nudging and the economy of the whole of society, but also of policymakers. And I think that's the biggest contribution because it's encouraged bright policymakers to think there are alternatives to just spending cash and making rules. And that's been something that's missing for a long time. I, I mean, I would take the seatbelt example that you started with as exactly an illustration of the opposite point. This is a situation where the government has been ready to um, engage in regulation and to require um, automobile manufacturers to install seatbelts and for people to wear them, and it's been enormously beneficial. They didn't try to adopt a policy to get people to, I mean, they, they do this too, but um, to drive different, you know, differently. And, and they did that in, in addition. But um, I think, to me, seatbelts is a great illustration of the power of traditional forms of government intervention. Now, the issue of whether nudges are being substituted for... Other things, that's very, it's very, very difficult to do the counterfactual and know where we would be without the nudges. So I don't think anybody has really any hard evidence on that. But I do worry that um, things like the intervention where we're going to show people our neighbor's energy bill and try to get them to, I guess, in the winter, turn down the heat and in the summer, um, turn up the heat. I do... Um, these types of interventions have a very small impact, and there is a very, very well-known economic approach to um, dealing with the problem of people not taking sufficient account of the, the externalities of using energy, which involves prices. And I, um, I have no smoking gun, but I really worry that these types of interventions are a distraction and 
from more fundamental types of interventions. So, yeah, I guess I disagree with you. But, but many of these fundamental interventions, um, you know, the seatbelt story is a good story because, you know, the car industry could jump on that, I guess, and, you know, improve um, safety of cars. And in that sense, it was an attractive thing to do. But I think if we're thinking obesity and we're going to cut corn syrup, I mean, that's not going to be a cheap thing to do. I mean, there, there's, there's serious economic yeah. costs. And, sure. And you, need, you, you certainly need to weigh the costs against the benefits but that's not happening right now. And in my view, that's the problem, that the food industry isn't taking any account of the impact of putting a lot of corn syrup in its food on health costs and, you know, the health costs that, are, that we bear in terms of government spending on health, but in that we also bear just in our, you know, individual quality of life and so on. Mm-hmm. So is it a matter of taxing negative externalities here? That's one, that's one traditional and very effective approach. Mm-hmm. So move uh, away from nudge? Maybe. Um, hmm? So this is a moving away from nudge? It's not so. Uh, I'm a, I do a lot of nudge stuff, too, and I'm, and I'm a great believer in these interventions. I just think that, the, in my opinion, the biggest possible downside of nudges is this risk that they can, uh, that they can substitute or distract mm-hmm. from more fundamental interventions. And, I th- and I'm, I'm a big advocate of, I think there's a lot of problems that could be addressed much more effectively by more traditional economic inter- interventions. There's, a, there's another uh, issue here, which is that traditional interventions like mandating seat belts or putting fines and so on focus public attention on the issue and make it uh, subject to political debate, whereas... Most of the nudge things are uh, hard to translate into the political arena where they're debated back and forth. I mean, would you uh, put uh, defaults uh, as an issue to be debated politically? It, it seems like something that's done by technocrats in the background. Um, woman in the balcony. Um, hello. First of all, thanks so much for, uh, to George Lowenstein for bringing up the issue of like drawing our attention to uh, more social and cultural context and problems. And, and then I'm uh, moving to my question. So um, I think one of the reasons why nudges have become so critical is that um, the driving force is that this growing body of knowledge in the last decades about human nature, and apparently this body of knowledge is, I mean, in the industry first of all, and then later the government is grasping this knowledge, except for humans themselves, and they are falling behind in understanding decision-making processes and so on, whereas all the other um, entities in the society are making use of it. So. So I think that one of the critical things is that is at the moment maybe what is what behavioral insights team is doing is uh, modest interventions, some of those things that you wouldn't argue against. But I, th- I think uh, Drazen Prelek has pointed attention to this modesty, and what makes not just critical is, the, is how far it can get eventually. And I would like to ask, um, 
your opinions about this like growing body of knowledge and how far this uh, application of knowledge might go and um, thinking that we we have a more and more understanding of human nature do you think uh, respecting choice as the best approximation of uh, human preferences would be the outcome of all this exploration of uh, human decision making in the sense that uh, rather than assuming human rationality or ir- uh, we, is it, can it be more possible that we respect uh, human irrationality and accept people's choices uh, do you think that could be one of the outcomes of that we go back into like, accepting choice in, uh, autonomous choices of people yeah that's the question I th- when you say should we accept choice I think you are you kind of implicitly have in mind that we're living in this sort of neutral environment and let and let's people let's let people do what they want to do but we're not living in a neutral environment we're living in an environment that's um, created by you know political and economic forces and they have a huge impact on the choices that we make and I, I'm, that's certainly one of the tenets of um, the whole nudge approach so the uh, the idea of kind of let people choose it, like there's no there's no such thing as a kind of a pure choice so i'm not, i'm not really sure what it would even mean and i don't know just one other, one other quick thing you raised about um people being aware of the science around decision making and whether that would actually help them so i think one of the things i haven't seen although um people with more education and knowledge may correct me, is any studies where just telling somebody in some way that they are being irrational or that there is some um, bias that they are prone to then makes them less prone to that bias in other situations when they just go about their normal life. In it, I mean, indeed, if that were the case, if it were that you're just telling someone that they are biased helps them, then you would imagine that all behavioral scientists would live extremely healthy um, sensible lives. Um, some of them may, uh, but not all of them, right? Um, they're prone to many of the same foibles that ever as everyone else. But one of the things that has changed very recently, I think, is the desire for people to essentially benefit from behavioral science themselves. And I think that's a growing market. So all these things around different ways you can lock yourself into certain things. There's all deposit contracts, etc. people are aware of. Um, there's a variety of different new small bits of software that you can take advantage of. So there's one cool, really cool thing called Impulse Saver. Um, obviously, it's not tested in RCT, but it's a little app where it has just a big red button on your phone, and whenever you press it, it saves five pounds, um, puts it in your savings account. Little things like that where people can be aware of their foibles and do something about it. They do need some outside help, but I think that is a growing market. To what extent do you think that we can... Uh, you, we're talking about this behavioral science and the things that we learn from behavioral science. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that what works here may not work in Israel, right? So uh, when we're learning things, I mean, are these things that we can transfer to other contexts or is it all going to be very context and time relative? Um, so the, is- the Israel example in many ways isn't quite the right one because we think that if they'd spoken to us, they wouldn't have made the mistakes they did. Um, (laughs) Which is easy to say in hindsight. Um, But I I feel that I'm in two minds about this. So things are context-specific. So do run the experiment every time, everywhere you go, if you can. Right? But um, having said that, 
almost everything we have tried was based on something someone else tried somewhere else. Okay. Right? So it's not like we just came up with an idea out of nowhere and that's always your best bet. It's like look for the thing that works in a situation as similar as possible, has worked in a context that's similar with similar kinds of people to achieve the same thing, right. then that's probably going to be more likely to work. You should still test it. I just, want, let me just, I just want to respond to this idea that we should um, allow people to make mistakes. And certainly, we should, uh, certainly in situations where the mistakes are small and people can learn from them and so on, we should allow people to make mistakes. But imagine that there's some kind of a roundabout on the road and it's um, small and people tend to spin off of it and then die. Well, um, they're not gonna, first, they're not going to learn from, there's not going to be any opportunity for learning from their mistakes. <laughs> And second, going back to the earlier point about um, shouldn't we let people choose, well, the, you know, was, humans created the bad roundabout, and it's not really an issue of choice. So certainly people should be allowed to make uh, mistakes and learn from them, but there, there's a limit to it. Let's go over there. Hello. Does the panel see a link between the use of nudge and the use of propaganda? And in allowing nudge, are we also allowing the use of propaganda in society? I mean, propaganda usually refers to um, informational interventions, and I think um, very few of the nudges involve information provision, and I think there's a good reason for that, that mostly information is giving people more or better information that rarely improves people's behavior. So if there's a analogy between propaganda and nudges, it has to be a pretty distant one, I would think. It seems like the link would be over social advertisement. You could take social advertisement and push it towards the propaganda side. Social advertisement and nudge have, often have this sort of behavioral insights behind them. Maybe that's sort of the way that a link could be created. But if you think about a nudge, like um, most nudges, almost by their very nature, don't involve information provision. They involve, like, choice architecture and things like that. 80% of the people are organ donors. That's maybe the sort of propaganda that you would be thinking of. Well, so when I think of propaganda, and maybe I'm a bit naive, I immediately think of dishonesty. <laughs> so it's not just provision of information. It's dishonest provision of information, deliberately to mislead people, I guess. Um, you could use behavioral science to do that, make it better, more effective, I should say, as opposed to better. You could um, equally use behavioral science, I guess, to try and make propaganda less effective. I mean, one of the things I would say is in all of our interventions, the, this gets into a little bit around motivation of the person creating the intervention. But in all of our interventions, whenever we provide different kinds of information to try and encourage people to make one choice or another, um, the objective is always to illuminate not to mislead. And I, I think the word propaganda, again, I'm having trouble with the word propaganda, but I think it really doesn't refer to an intervention toward an individual, but always an individual as a member of a group or society. There's always a collectivist aspect of a propagandistic message. And that's a minor theme in the nudge, nudge uh, approach, I think. Let's go to the woman in the back there. Yes. Um, hi, I work for a consulting firm, and we are paid by our clients to use the uh, behavioral science to nudge their customers. 
So example of uh, one of the work that we are doing is uh, we are testing out different versions of a letter that a bank would send to their customer in order to increase the chance that the customer would renew their home insurance. So um, my question is to Professor Josh Lewinstein that you mentioned earlier in your presentations that making people aware that they are being nudged wouldn't have any effect at all. So do you think if we put something on the letter, we could say something like, this letter had been optimized in order to you know, increase the chance that you're going to pay us more money? Do you think it would still have no effect? <laughs> I think, well, well first, um, I didn't say that, nudge, that nudges have no, I mean, awareness has no impact at all. I said, I, um, I just ran one study in which um, we did not find an effect. On the other hand, I think you might be really surprised if you um, ran your hypothetical study. You, um, you might be surprised that, that the warning would have no effect. I mean, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of research on warnings, and most of my research suggests that um, warnings, they often have the the opposite of effect of what is intended, like warnings about conflict of interest seem to benefit the person who has the conflict of interest and hurt the person who's getting the advice from a conflicted advisor and so on. But uh, you should try it. <laughs> uh, see, see if your employer wants to do that. Let's go for a final question. Um, let's go there. Yeah. Hi, uh, Martina Wojtkova from International Initiative for Impact Valuation. Um, I had one comment and one question. The comment was um, to Sam, uh, to your previous comment about how information impacts behavior. There are indeed um, studies on this looking at um, um, whether you, when you tell people correct statistic about, for example, your likelihood of cancer and whether that changes your opinion on how likely you are to have cancer. And in fact, it shows that there is some effect but not sufficient to completely correct the bias. Um, my question was, we've talked a lot about the um, ethics of a conscious nudge by, by the government, and I was interested to hear the panel speak about the ethics of perhaps unconsciously nudging people in a way that we are not aware of. For example, um, the case of the job centre um, could be easily construed as the government unconsciously nudging people not to get jobs by making it really difficult for them and by being unaware. One could consider that to be unethical and therefore maybe an understanding of nudges is important. Um, on the job centre point, I'm not sure I quite understand w whether it I mean, it is an unconscious. They know they're being um, given an intervention, and the aim is to encourage them to get jobs and help them get jobs, not the opposite. Um, just to clarify, I was thinking um, the way that job centres are run, so the processes where you have to sit down and go through 17 questions before you get to see a counsellor, that is an intervention which in its architecture might unconsciously nudge people to leave before they see a counsellor and not bother. Um, so I guess my question was, are there instances where we are perhaps unconsciously nudging people to do the things that we don't want them to do? And should we consider the ethics of that? Um, I am fully with you then. I agree that 
If we're doing something that is harmful, both we and the person receiving the intervention would regard it as harmful, um, then we should not do it. I think the main... I mean, one of the main things that occurs to me in that is just that we should test stuff. Does it work? Does it help or hinder people getting into work? Um, I mean, my hypothesis with giving someone loads of paperwork when they first come into a job centre is that it probably isn't helpful, right? Um, I, there's no data on it, so it's kind of hard to know. Um, but I agree that it may well be unethical to do any interventions when you don't know whether they work or not. But the problem with that argument in practice is that it then becomes very difficult to know what to do. So I'll give you an example. This is a debate I have with my colleagues all the time, um, only for fun, not because anyone actually uh, believes any of the things they say. But let's suppose that we have an education system we spend many billions of pounds on that has a certain formula we've inherited from Victorian age. Um, And we don't actually know if it has any positive impact. Um, Let's suppose that's true because it is true. Um, Now, does that mean our education system is unethical? Probably not, but actually um, it's kind of hard to know. Model your way out of that argument. But I think most people would agree that an experiment where some kids didn't go to school at all. (laughs) So it's a difficult question. Final words of wisdom? Well, I thought the question was going to go in a different direction, which is, is it ethical ever not to nudge when you know you have the ability to nudge? But that wasn't the question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was a final gesture of wisdom. (laughs) All right. I think that brings us to the point um, of thanking our, our panel and our audience.